0: microphone on and then say that again. It's always helpful if you turn the microphone on and then speak into it rather than vice versa. So our guys are really good, but they have not yet found a way to make my microphone work when I have it in the off position. Yeah, <laughs> I'll be having a fun conversation about that with Les this week. He's like, there is a way to solve that, and it's going to, my button's going to be taped over by next week, I'm sure, so... I want to invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 1. Uh, We're, as I said last week, we're taking a a brief break from our expositional study of the book of Isaiah, and uh, we've turned our attention last week and now this week to Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8, from which we are gleaning seven characteristics of a healthy church. Seven characteristics of a healthy church. And of course... The scripture has a lot to say about the local church, and so there are a lot of characteristics that we could talk about from different passages. We've decided to focus just on this one passage and on the seven characteristics that we can observe here. So, this is by no means a comprehensive list, but it is nonetheless a very helpful list seven characteristics of a healthy church. And last week we covered verses three through five, which emphasize faith hope and love. Look at Colossians chapter 1 verses 3 through 5. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth the gospel. So from Verse 4, we gleaned the first characteristic of a healthy church, which is that a healthy church is known for their faith in Christ. We heard, Paul says, of your faith in Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, we also heard of your love for all believers. And from that we, we gleaned the principle that a healthy church is known for their love for all the saints, all the believers. And then from verse 5, we gleaned the third characteristic of a healthy church. A healthy church has a certain hope and a certain future. Verse 5, he talks about the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. So our message last week focused on faith, on hope, and on love. And these are the first three characteristics of a healthy church because everything else really depends upon these three foundational Christian qualities and so last week the call to us from the word of God was to devote ourselves to growing in grace and the knowledge of Christ growing in our love for one another so that we would fervently want love one another from the heart and to fix our hope fully upon Jesus Christ. Well, that brings us now to this morning's message, which is going to be focused on the fourth characteristic of a healthy church. And we're going to spend about 80 or even 90% of our time on the fourth one and then just very briefly go through the other three. So we're going to focus this morning on the fourth characteristic of a healthy church, which is that a healthy church bears fruit and grows. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 6. He says, the gospel has come to you just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth i want you to notice that phrase constantly bearing fruit and increasing and The New American Standard that I'm preaching from uses that term constantly because the Greek grammar used here consists of a present indicative modified by two present participles and that grammatical construction really emphasizes the continuous and ongoing nature of what is being described. He's saying that the gospel is always or constantly or continually bearing fruit and increasing. The gospel is expanding. It is multiplying. It is exponentially growing. And I want you to notice that this expansive growth is said to be in three distinct areas or aspects. There are three aspects of gospel expansion that are mentioned in This verse, and the first of the three is geographical expansion. Notice he says, The gospel has come to you just as in all the world it is bearing fruit and increasing. This is geographical expansion. It is the gospel reaching to the very ends of the earth, or as Acts 1 8 puts it, the remotest part of the earth. So we have a geographical expansion. Then we also have here, a quantitative expansion. Notice it says that it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. This is referring to quantitative or numerical expansion. And then we also have qualitative expansion. He says, it's also been growing and bearing fruit in you ever since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. And so the gospel is expanding into all the world geographically it is, there's an increasing number of people who are being saved by the gospel and those who have heard the gospel and received it like the Colossians the gospel is bearing fruit in their lives they are saved and then they begin to grow spiritually as the Holy Spirit indwells them and begins to lead them into more and more um, imitation of the life and likeness of Christ So, I want you to think how exciting it is that the scripture here confirms that the gospel in all the world is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. That is good news. That's that's encouraging news. In the midst of all of the bad headlines you hear, hear this headline The gospel in all the world is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. This is exciting. Think about how exciting the reality of geographical expansion is. This good news first preached along a seashore in Israel. This gospel first proclaimed by fishermen and common people from an occupied country. This gospel which was proclaimed by persecuted and poor and rejected people is expanding into all the world filling the earth it says that the gospel is continually penetrating formerly unreached areas of the world the words of Jesus in Acts 1-8 are being fulfilled he says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and he says and even to the remotest part of the earth I've had the great privilege throughout my life of meeting some people who were truly taking the gospel to the highways and byways of cities, who were taking the gospel to the slums of third world countries, who are taking the gospel deep into the mountain ravines and the jungles of the world. This gospel is expanding geographically. But also exciting is that it is expanding numerically there is a quantitative expansion god is mighty to save and he is continually saving more and more people people from every tribe tongue and nation and when the lord shows john in the book of revelation the end he says it was an uncountable number of people an uncountable number of people who are saved the words of Jesus, again, are being fulfilled. He said in John 4.35, Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. And we're going to return to that verse in a moment. But what is also exciting is the qualitative expansion. Not just that more and more people are being saved, but those who are saved are, are being taught by the holy spirit who indwells them to grow in grace and the knowledge of christ they're becoming more like christ there's good fruit being made in their life as they are transformed by the grace of god so we have great encouragement geographical expansion and numerical expansion and the quality of our own spiritual lives should always be expanding Again, the words of Jesus are being fulfilled when he said in Matthew 13, 23, the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some 60 and some 30. The seed, when it falls on good soil, produces fruit. And Jesus says, in some, it's 100-fold. some, it's 60-fold. In some, it's 30-fold. And you're maybe sitting there saying, because I remember earlier in life reading this verse and saying, man, I I haven't led 30 people to Christ. You may be sitting there saying, I mean, definitely not 100, definitely not 60, definitely not 30. There were many years in my life where I, I couldn't even say one. And maybe that's you. So, You're saying, well, wait a minute. Did the seed not fall on good soil? Because Jesus says, when the seed falls on good soil, it does produce fruit. And in context, he's talking about souls of people. Can I encourage you with something? I am confident, based upon scripture, that there will be no believer who doesn't have, at least, as Jesus said, a 30-fold harvest how can that be pastor Brad? i boy you know maybe i mean i i you know i i I had i shared with someone but then it was really someone else who kind of came alongside and led them to christ can i tell you when you get to heaven if you have lived a life of faith and if you have shown the light of the gospel you will have that 30 60 or 100 fold increase the God who is mighty to save has promised it and he is doing it. I wanna just even cause you to think about something. Recently, I was kind of thinking about how many people have come to Christ through my grandfather. He was the first in his family to come to saving faith and he faithfully taught and modeled the gospel. He, I couldn't say he was some great evangelist But he faithfully taught the gospel to his four children. And those four children taught the gospel to their children. And now as it reaches now to the next generation, there is this incredible number. It's gone past 30-fold, past 60-fold, and soon it will be past 100-fold. So if All you succeed in doing is Is to share the gospel with your own children Within two generations You'll have the 30 fold You'll have the 60 fold You'll have the 100 fold And when you get to heaven You'll be able to rejoice in seeing All that the Lord did Through your faithfulness To the gospel By the way Paul is Quoting Matthew 13 23 In Colossians 1 6 How do I know that well Matthew chapter thirteen, uh, verse twenty three says, "The man who hears the word and understands it bears fruit." And that's exactly what Colossians one six says. It says, "You are bearing fruit ever since you heard and understood the grace of God in truth." A direct citation of the Lord's words in Matthew thirteen twenty three. Paul is emphasizing that spiritually healthy Christians and churches bear fruit. After all, it was the Lord Jesus who promised to build the church. He says in Matthew 16:18, "I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it." By the way, this is this is why we don't need gimmicks. We don't, you know, need to bribe people to get them into the church, you know, you know, you know free iPhone giveaway at Calvary Bible Church, right? I mean, you know, we'd have the whole city of Kalamazoo and we could, you know, be in some magazine as sparking the third great awakening. Of course, the only thing that would awaken there is debt and a bunch of people being on the internet more, which has done no one any good. we don't need gimmicks. We need Christ building his church. And his means for doing so are very simple. The word of God transforming the heart of a person and that person sharing it with others. That's it. It's that simple. He teaches us through his word. We pass it on. That's the big genius idea I have, okay? So genius idea from the pastor, okay? Hear the scriptures, share the scriptures. Like, you know, I would write a book about it, but, you know, a two-sentence book doesn't really, you know... I'm not sure. I mean, the reviews would be, you know, like, why would we read this? That's the truth. That simple. And Jesus, notice, he says, I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail. What's the point? Jesus didn't send us on a failed mission, He didn't send us to fight a losing war. Yes, he said, I'm sending you out like lambs in the midst of wolves. Yes, it's a hard mission, but it's not a futile mission. Yes, it's a fight of faith, and it's a hard fight, but it's not a losing fight. Rather, he says, yes, you know, all day long we're like sheep to be slaughtered, Paul says in Romans 8, we're persecuted and struck down. We face the sword and famine and all of these things. Yet, he says, in all these things, we are super conquerors. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I will build my church, Jesus says. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. So stop being such pessimists. The problem is, is, if we're honest, is we actually doubt whether God is mighty to save. That's the reality. If you believe God is mighty to save, you'll share the message. If you don't think God is mighty to save, you won't. You know, you'll look at the world and the fortresses of error will seem too strong. The walls around people's hearts will seem too high. And they are too strong and too high for you and for me and any human ingenuity. But The gospel and the word of God, according to Paul, tears down strongholds and takes every thought captive to Christ. Sadly, a spirit of pessimism and defeatism has permeated the churches in modern times. And that's why we have lost the zeal exemplified by the one who sparked the modern missions movement, William Carey, who would famously say, expect great things from God and then attempt great things for God. And friend, I'm telling you, you will never attempt great things for God if you don't expect great things from God. We need to recover our advancing faith. But instead, as a spirit of pessimism and defeatism fills the church, we sigh, we shake our heads, we bemoan the headlines, and we tell ourselves that the fields are clearly not white unto harvest so why bother why bother how does this work out practically this spirit of pessimism and defeatism well try suggesting various opportunities ministries and even methods of sharing the gospel and what will you hear oh that doesn't work Oh, we tried that, it doesn't work. I tried that, it doesn't work. That's not a very effective method of evangelism. That's not really the ministry that is you know, gonna really be effective. And what happens in churches is the process of elimination keeps going until everything has been eliminated. You know, uh, you know in, the, in the old days, the churches used to just go door-to-door sharing the gospel. Well, that doesn't work in our time. Plus, the cults do it, so, you know, we don't want to be like them. You know, handing out a tract, well, that doesn't really work, so let's not do that anymore either. You know, um, you know, having a, you know, doing Christmas caroling or inviting someone to an Easter outreach, that doesn't really work, so let's not do that either. And pretty soon, the process of elimination becomes comprehensive. We eliminate literally all methods and literally all outreach ministries. Because we're convinced they don't work. But I've noticed something. Those who are typically the most critical of evangelistic methods and ministries have no alternative. They will, go to, they will wax eloquently on why this approach doesn't work and that's not effective and we shouldn't be doing it this way, but they never say, here's how we should do it. And I am very, I am all ears for better ideas, more effective tools. If you have gone out into the harvest field and you have found that a particular instrument or way or approach has been most effective, by all means share it and try to get as many people as you can to join you. But if you are not even in the field and you're criticizing those who are and you're saying well it doesn't work it's not effective it's you know, you know, it's you know my systematic theology course showed me that that method is deficient well do you know what the most theologically deficient method of evangelism is it's doing nothing do you know what the most ineffective way of doing outreach is it is to do no outreach at all Far too often, we pessimistically reject method after method and we apathetically pass up ministry after ministry and opportunity after opportunity all in the name of it doesn't work or it's not the best way. And we tell ourselves that our day is a day of spiritual famine, there's no harvest to bring in, and we tell ourselves maybe someday someone will have the genius idea you know, one day, Brett's gonna get up there and he's gonna have a better idea than hear the word of God and share the word of God. Like, there's gonna be some secret sauce, right, that is gonna open the door. Some, somebody's gonna write the book or come up with the method, maybe someday. But in the meantime, we'll do nothing and wait for better harvest conditions. Sadly, the words of Christ in John chapter 4, verse 35 are very true of the modern church. He says, do you not say, there are yet four months, and then the harvest will come. Four months from now, then the harvest will come. That's exactly what we think when it comes to evangelism. You know, look, when the harvest comes, oh, I'll be there, Lord, I'm ready to go. Just As soon as the third great awakening happens, boy, you just watch me go. You know, when I start hearing these reports of mass conversions, I'll go out and do, do my part to bring in the sheaves. In the meantime, the ground is unplowed. The ground is not being seeded. The ground is not being watered. And everybody's waiting for the harvest, but no one does the work it takes to bring it. There is no farmer who sits around in his house and says, you know what, when the harvest comes, I'll go reap it. That is a starving farmer. All the farmers I know, they are plowing the second the. opportunity comes they are sowing the seed they're watering and fertilizing and then they are praying and quite literally for a harvest jesus says you know you you keep saying oh there's still four more months and then the harvest will come but what did he say he says behold i say to you lift up your eyes and look at the fields They're white for harvest now. Then he says this, he says, Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. He's saying, while you're sitting on the sideline saying, nope, the harvest isn't ready yet. Harvest isn't ready yet. I'll be there when it is. He says, while you're saying that, there are already people in the field and they're bringing in the harvest. Someone sowed, another is reaping, and they are bringing in. And he says, wages. This is a reference to eternal reward given to those who labor faithfully in the Lord's harvest field. He says, while you're sitting on the sideline, other people are earning the wages. And they're going to experience the rejoicing of bringing in this harvest. And you are missing out because you keep saying, harvest isn't here, harvest isn't here, it's tough times, you know. Jesus says, stop gazing at your navel, lift up your eyes and look at the fields. And you'll see two things there. They're white for harvest and there are people already there reaping. So join them. Don't just sit in the pew telling yourself maybe someday I'll become a soul winner. Lift up your eyes and look and notice the people all around you, the souls right next to you, the fields are white unto harvest. You know, I was really encouraged. Uh, recently, um, Angela replaces the tracks in the track racks and does that uh, every quarter. And she uh, reported to us that in the last three months, she had to replace 2,447 tracks. And I just want to pause as, as your pastor and say, well done. <laughs> now, I'm a realist, so I know half of those are sitting under the floorboards of your car and you need to dig some out because they do cost a couple cents each. But, but that tells me that the word of God is going forth from this congregation. I was even more encouraged by last Sunday evening, where the young families in Mike Ryder's Go Group shared how God had given them a heart for the lost, and to hear these young families saying, "You know, for the first time in my life, I begin to notice people, and I begin to realize the opportunities that are all around me." What a joy! that was but what saddens me is that there are quite a few the Lord only knows how many in our church who are sitting on the sideline saying four more months and then the harvest will come and by the time you get around to it the harvest will be over I'm disappointed that so many miss the blessings of hearing the testimonies of what God is doing for example last Sunday night you passed up an incredible opportunity to hear what God is doing and on Sunday nights as we come to our worship service and we have, we have the teaching of the word and we have music and we have corporate prayer then we break into small groups what we call go groups and what do we do there well the number one thing we do there is we intercede for the lost that's what we do Do you have lost loved ones? Come on Sunday nights and pray for them and ask others to pray for them and then pray for them and week by week share about the status of those prayers and watch God begin to work. Praying for the lost is step one in reaping a harvest. So I want to invite you to come on Sunday evenings and pray. Pray for them with other believers and in general just as the church at writ large in modern times we need to shake off the defeatist apathetic attitude which assumes there will be no fruit when we haven't even labored in the fields you know if our little corner of the Lord's harvest field doesn't bear a lot of fruit let it not be because we weren't there working let it not be for lack of plowing and sowing and watering. If the third awakening does not come in our day, let it not be because of a lack of intercessory prayer, of intentional effort, and of evangelistic zeal. If lost souls all around us plunge into hell, may it not be without ignoring our earnest pleas that they repent and believe the good news of the gospel. As Charles Spurgeon famously put it, quote, If sinners wind up damned at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees imploring them to turn around. If hell must be filled let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. That's the heart I want our church to have. If People in Kalamazoo Parish, let it not be without stepping around us as we say, Turn back! Turn back! Let it not be without them hearing our pleas and without our intercessory prayers. As Spurgeon says, Let not one perish unwarned and unprayed for. Now, we need to remember that we are not the Lord of the harvest. God is. We don't control the result. We don't save. He does. We are not sovereign. He is. So apart from him, we can do nothing. But the scripture says, with him, nothing is impossible. He is the Lord of the harvest. But the fact that he is Lord of the harvest should compel you into the field, not keep you from it. Because Jesus has said, lift up your eyes and look, the fields are white unto harvest. And already the sowers and the reapers are at work. They are already receiving their eternal reward. So go and labor. That's the command of the sovereign Lord of the harvest. And so that's why Colossians 1 is so encouraging. In all the world, Paul says, the gospel is constantly bearing fruit and increasing Don't you want to be a part of that? What else could you devote your life to that's more significant than that? So lift up your eyes and see. See that the fields are white unto harvest. Then fold your hands to pray for the lost. Then shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace and go and then open your mouth and simply share the word of God. Do you know John 3, 16? Tell it to someone. Do you know 1 Corinthians 15 that says that the gospel is that Christ died for our sins, he was buried and rose from the dead on the third day? Then go tell someone about it. A healthy church bears fruit and grows. Next in our remaining time, we'll look at the fifth characteristic of a healthy church, which is that a healthy church understands the grace of God. A healthy church understands the grace of God and understands it correctly. Look at verse 6 at the end. It says, the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it, now listen to this, and understood the grace of God in truth. You understood the grace of God in truth. Now I want you to notice Something In verse 5 and in verse 6, there's a repetition of a very similar phrase. In verse 5, he tells the Colossians, you previously heard the gospel. And then in verse 6, he says, ever since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God and truth, the gospel has been expanding. So this phrase, previously heard, or having heard beforehand, these similar ideas are repeated in verses 5 and 6. So why, when Paul is urging them to action in the present, does he keep reminding them of that time, that time in their lives when they had heard the gospel? He keeps saying, remember this. You heard the gospel. You previously heard it and you understood it and you understood it in truth. Why does he keep pointing them back to their conversion? Well, he's reminding them that the gospel which saved them is the same one they need to proclaim to others. He reminds them of what they heard and believed in the past in order to exhort them to live out their faith in the present and to overcome the temptations and trials of the future. He says, look, keep going back to the foundation. What is the foundation? It's the same gospel you previously heard. It's the same good news that you may have known since childhood or whenever you first heard it. He wants them to build upon that simple foundation. And that foundation, he says, is that you understood the grace of God in truth. Now, when he says that they heard the gospel and they Understood the grace of God he uses what are called aorist tense verbs these are verbs of a finished action it signals that they had really heard it and really understood it now in context of Colossians the Colossian church was facing a challenge from false teachers false teachers were saying look okay look this gospel that you heard from the apostles it's good as far as it goes but you need something more. There's a higher knowledge that will lift you to a higher spiritual plane. So, leave the apostolic foundation. That's child's play. You know, you know the Sunday school stories, you need something a lot more sophisticated than that. Follow us, and we'll lead you to a much more enlightened view. You know, get in, get in touch with the times, and Don't be stuck in your old-fashioned things. Get on the right side of history and follow us to a higher knowledge and a better morality than that old apostolic Sunday school thing. That was what the Colossians were facing when Paul says no. The foundation that you heard and understood was the grace of God and its truth. It is truth. There's nothing higher than that. He's going to go on in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, to warn them. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive, right? Lures you off the gospel foundation and takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete. He didn't give you half the gospel. He gave you the full gospel. He didn't give you half of what you need. He gave you all that you need. So stand on the foundation. Don't let false teachers lure you away by saying that what you have is deficient so you need something else or something more. Every generation including ours always has false teachers who have some new philosophical psychological, sociological or theological theory that promises some sort of secret, secret knowledge, secret sauce, secret solutions, higher knowledge, higher plane that will solve everybody's problems, help them really grow, help them really be elevated and the apostles keep saying, look, <laughs> now don't, uh, don't buy it. Don't buy it. Just stand on the foundation of the simple gospel of Jesus Christ and be unmovable. You are complete in him because all the fullness of deity dwells in him. Notice also, though, that Paul emphasizes having a correct understanding of grace he says you understood the grace of God in truth you really understood it correctly how can someone misunderstand grace well look around I mean lots of people misunderstand grace clearly and I think there are two major ways that people misunderstand grace I think there's probably not a church in the world that doesn't say we teach and preach and practice grace we want grace to characterize us but man what a range of what people think grace means well what are, what's the true understanding of grace and what are the errors I want to explain to you what two major directional errors that deviate from grace are And the first is legalism. And the second is licentiousness. These are opposite errors, but they both pull you off the path of grace. Legalism, or what we could call Pharisaism, is when we add to Scripture. Whereas licentiousness is when we take away from Scripture. And you can deviate from the path of grace either by adding to Scripture or by taking away Scripture, by legalism or licentiousness. So what is legalism? Legalism is when we add to Scripture and try to earn God's favor by keeping man-made rules. I want to read to you what Jesus said about legalism in his rebuke of the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. He says, Woe to you, Pharisees, hypocrites, For you tithe mint and dill and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also woe to you scribes and pharisees hypocrites for you are like whitewashed tombs which on the outside appear beautiful but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness so you two outwardly appear righteous to men but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness that's the danger of legalism it's all external it's keeping a bunch of man-made rules so that you look good to others while inside your heart is all sorts of wickedness listen to what paul says about legalism in 1 corinthians chapter 4 1 corinthians 4 beginning in verse 5 he says Do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that none of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other for who regards you as superior what do you have that you did not receive and if you did receive it why do you boast as if you had not received it don't go beyond what is written so many people have all this spiritual pride because they've made up a rule and keep their own rule and that makes them better than someone else it doesn't it doesn't and then in our own book, the book of Colossians, just one chapter over after Colossians 1, we come to Colossians chapter 2, verse 20, which says, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. It doesn't matter how much you whitewash the tomb. It doesn't matter how many rules you create. It doesn't matter how high you think your standards are. The problem is in your heart. You can paint the tomb white, but the death is still inside. Legalism does nothing to restrain the flesh in fact it only covers it with a veneer of pride who's in a worse condition the lawless person who doesn't even claim to be holy or the lawless person who is also proud it's lawlessness covered with pride which is so spiritually deadly so legalism is a terrible thing want to give an example of this. I recently read an article by a highly respected evangelical conference speaker and in this article he argued for several paragraphs that it was wrong to dim the lights in the church sanctuary during worship. You want to know why? Because God is a God of light. So we should keep the lights on. Full blast. And he compared any church that dims the lights during worship to compromisers. I was shocked, frankly, to hear such poor hermeneutics coming from such a highly respected speaker and one with such a high level of theological education. But the real issue I had with the article is this. The writer seemed more concerned about the status of the dimmer switch in the back of the auditorium than the status of people's hearts as they worship. And that's the danger of legalism. It shifts the emphasis from loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength to keeping a bunch of man-made rules or traditions or preferences which have no value in restraining the flesh. If you think that this congregation will be more holy if we keep the house lights on during worship, you're sadly mistaken. Nor will we be made more holy by dimming them. That dimmer switch does nothing for your sanctification up or down middle or sl- you know wherever that's legalism it distracts us from the issues of the heart there's an opposite error though which is licentiousness or antinomianism that's when we subtract from scripture and use grace as an excuse to sin we use grace as an excuse for sin in romans chapter 6 verse 2 he says or in verse 1 he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And then in Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 15 we read a very important passage. It says, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men and instructing us now I want you to think how most modern churches think this verse must go the grace of God has appeared saving us and teaching us teaching us what and you know what the answer of most modern churches is teaching us to be accepting of all people tolerant of all lifestyles warm and welcoming to anyone regardless of whether they're repentant or not that's what grace means. Go to them. They're so proud of their their graciousness. They think that they're living out grace by telling people that any sin is no big deal. God, God loves you just as you are, however you are, no matter how long you stay how you are. They think that's what grace teaches. Listen though to what the word of God rather than the word of liberal Christianity actually teaches Titus 2.11 for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly righteously and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, people who are zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. That's what a church of grace is like a church which understands the grace of God in truth proclaims the message that the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation and once you are saved the grace of God then teaches you what does it teach you? it teaches you to deny ungodliness to live righteously And why does grace teach you to deny ungodliness and live righteously? Because Christ died to save you from sin, not to leave you in it. He died to redeem you from sin and to purify you so that you will be a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good deeds. That's what grace teaches. These churches who say, we're teaching grace, and their message is however you live is fine they have the forked tongue of the devil my friends the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly righteously and godly in the present age licentiousness or antinomianism is when we subtract from scripture and use grace as an excuse to sin I want to give an illustration of this recently as well. There was a recent article published in The Hill which exemplifies why I think the American church is so anemic, ineffective, and worldly. There was a supposedly Christian congresswoman who recently attended a prayer breakfast And her pastor was there with her And I've been to these prayer breakfast type events before Typically, if a congressperson's pastor is there They're seated at the same table So here's this congresswoman Seated near or next to her pastor And she gets up to speak And when she gets up to speak She jokes about sharing a bed with her fiance And openly jokes about her plans To commit fornication that very evening and then she goes and sits down next to her pastor. Later, when her political opponents pointed out her, her hypocrisy of bragging about fornication at a prayer breakfast, she shrugged it off and said while social media giggling via a uh, laughing face emoji that, well, maybe she and her pastor might have a little more to chat about on Sunday. This woman has no fear of God. And no fear, clearly, of facing church discipline for continuing in open, unrepentant, blatant sin and rebellion against the Lord. The salt has lost its saltiness. And then it's not this Congresswoman's fault, it's the mute pastor she sat next to. Far too many pastors wink and nod at sin while cloaking their cowardice and compromise in the name of grace. He probably sat there and said, we're, we're, I'm a pastor who emphasizes grace. No, no. If you emphasize grace, you would know that grace instructs us to deny ungodliness and you would, as a pastor, heed Titus 2.15 which says, these things, which things? The things just mentioned that grace teaches us to deny ungodliness. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one, even a congresswoman, disregard you. Real grace commands pastors To speak, exhort, and reprove with all authority, to let no one disregard them. The American church is sick, and the most infected part of the body is the immune system, and particularly the pulpit. In American churches, the virus of sin can share a table with a pastor at a prayer breakfast without being rebuked and called to either repent or to stop naming the name of Christ. So if we want revival, it needs to start in the church We need to take the shepherd's staff away from cowards and compromisers and give it to men with courage enough to proclaim the truth. So we need to do that. A healthy church understands the grace of God. We avoid legalism on the one hand and licentiousness on the other. And I will say, you know, these two things are like a pendulum in some eras of the church's history. The real danger is legalism and in others, it's licentiousness, and I think clearly in our day, the primary danger is licentiousness. And of course, legalism is always a threat, but the licentiousness in the American church is astounding. Well, we need to wrap up and go to the table of the Lord. I want to just briefly mention the last two, which is a healthy church learns from godly teachers. He says that they had learned the gospel from Epaphras, who was a faithful minister. So instead of following those who tickle itching ears, we need to be learning from those who proclaim the truth. And then the seventh characteristic, and last is that a healthy church walks in the fruit of the Spirit. Verse eight says that Paul had heard of their love in the Spirit. The love that they had originated in the Spirit. It it took place in the power of the Spirit, in the sphere of the Spirit's working in their lives. In other words, it was part of the Spirit's fruit in their lives, as Galatians 5.22 says, the fruit of the Spirit is love. As we come now to the Lord's table, and I want to invite the men to come to serve us the bread and the cup, I want you to be examining yourself. How are you personally, and then we corporately, as we examine ourselves corporately, how are we doing in these seven areas? How's our faith, our love, our hope, our fruitfulness, our understanding of grace our learning and our walk in the spirit as the men serve let's reflect and examine ourselves in these seven areas lord as we come now to your table we pray that you would help us individually and corporately as a church to live out these seven characteristics lord help us to be people of faith of hope and of love help us to be fruitful Lord, help us to understand your grace and to be transformed by it. Help us to sit at the feet of faithful leaders and expositors, Lord, who have gone before us, those of the ages past and learn from them. Help us to turn away from ear ticklers to those uh, like Epaphras. And Lord, help us also to walk in the Spirit. As we come to your table, Lord, bring areas of conviction of sin to our hearts and minds, both individually and corporately, and prepare us to partake of your table. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Men, please come and serve. sharing that illustration about the congresswoman maybe there was someone who was convicted of that area of sin or some other area of sin you know one of the most marvelous things about grace is all it takes is a repentant heart see the difference between her and what I hope is true of you if you're in that situation is one brags and the other is broken So if you're broken over sin, seek the Lord. Call upon him while he may be found. He is mighty to save. He is a forgiving God. Grace saves and transforms. And so if you have confessed sin to the Lord, you've relied upon his finished work on the cross, then partake of the Lord's table with joy, knowing that his body was broken for you. Lord when we consider those who brag about sin we do not come here thinking we are better but we are broken and it is because of that that we need saving and that's why we're so grateful that you came to save that your body was bruised for our transgressions you were wounded and crushed and beaten and died because of our iniquities lord it is true grace that you would save us while we were dead in sin and while we were helpless to do anything about it ourselves so we give you praise for the gospel the good news that saves and transforms and we give you praise in jesus name amen Men, come and serve the cup